G'day, and welcome to the Castle Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church online service. Have you ever needed forgiveness? Did you get it? And how did you feel when you were forgiven? Or how do you feel knowing that someone still hasn't forgiven you? And have you ever needed to forgive someone for something significant? Was it hard to forgive them? Or is there still someone you can't bring yourself to forgive? Do you think someone can do something so bad that forgiveness is never an option? Or is there always the possibility of forgiveness? The experience giving and receiving forgiveness is different for everyone. But what is the ultimate meaning of forgiveness? Today we're excited to have Pastor Eddie Johnson exploring this topic a little later on. So whether this is your first time joining us, or if you're a long-time family member of Castle Hill Church, we're so glad you're watching. And it's our prayer that this presentation will be a blessing to you. I do not know about you, but when I read Hebrews 11, which someone called the Bible Hall of Faith, I'm always amazed that the people whose names are on God's honor list, apart from Abel and Enoch, whose life we know nothing about, all the others have flaws, weaknesses written against them. Noah got drunk until smashed. He walked around naked in his tent and collapsed on his mat in a drunken stupor. Abraham did not re really trust God, at least not at first. He asked his wife to tell lies about her status as a married woman. He did not really believe that God could give him a son, seeing that his, one was, his wife was barren. He took matters in his own hands and produced Ishmael, who would prove to be a thorn in Israel's flesh. I could review the lives of all the people mentioned and read the records of their unfaithfulness displayed in many different ways. Jacob was a deceiver, a schemer. His 12 sons had all kinds of misbehavior recorded against their names. Just to name a few, Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi slaughtered a whole village, men, women, kids. Then they cut off the legs of the horses and cattle. Talk about being sadistic. Judah slept with a widow of his own son, whom he took for a prostitute. You might tell me that their names are not listed. These last names are not listed in Hebrews 11. But wait a minute. They constitute the 144,000 dressed in white, standing before God's own throne. Maybe one day I'll have the opportunity of sharing with you my take on the 144,000, but that's for another time. Amazing is the change that God achieved in every single one of these individuals. Starting with the rawest of material, God worked out vessels of honor that he placed in the divine throne room as trophies. I can hear some of you say that God had forgiven them. Yeah, indeed, he has. But it seems to me that God did something more than just forgiving. Or maybe forgiveness is much more than we usually think it is. We Christians believe that forgiveness is an attitude that we should have, and we do know something about it. Bible studies and sermons often address the topic, and we ourselves often forgive those who sin against us, like the prayer tells us to do. In my counseling room at Adra Blacktown Community Center, I encounter clients whose lives are bitter because the memory of people that have offended them is still fresh in their minds, festering into deep-seated anger that regularly explodes into aggressivity. Forgiveness is the remedy, but they have a hard time doing so because they operate under one or more of five myths about forgiveness. First myth, forgiveness we think should change the offender. That's a myth. If you wait for the offender to change, you might wait your whole life. Then the second myth, forgiveness must follow apologies. 
And that's not true either. Because if you wait for apologies, you become a slave to the one who is supposed to apologize. And you will, you will always live in the shadow of that expectation that may never come. Lots of people and the ones that come to my office, they say, we do not want to forgive because it makes us vulnerable, makes us weak. It shows weakness. Number four, forgiveness lets the offender get away. We hear that all the time. And number five, forgiveness means forgetting. Now, I am not going to go into those five myths because you've heard them before and you know about them and you may have operated under one or two of those yourself. The problem is that when we forgive under these assumptions, our heart gradually hardens. And in the course of time, we become just like the people that have offended us. Yes, forgiveness is a spiritual remedy that brings healing to the victim, to the offended, and we all agree with that. That's why we forgive those that trespass against us. It's for our own healing. But have you stopped to think that forgiving to be healed is a concept that psychology would have discovered later had it not discovered it sooner? Any psychology manual will mention those four steps or those four myths, those five myths. And if we forgive because we are healed, is that a little bit selfish, self-centered? But what if forgiveness is about healing the offender? What if healing the offender is primarily what forgiveness is all about? If that is the ultimate nature of forgiveness, healing the offender, then I can understand the names of those people in Hebrews 11 and Revelation 7. But it raises a question. How must I forgive in order to heal the person that has offended me? What is the vital part of the forgiving act that heals the offender? I don't know about you, but I have seldom heard sermons that go that far when the sermon focuses on forgiveness. That was a very long intro. Let's get to the main course now. John 21 is the episode of Peter being forgiven by Jesus. May I suggest that what Jesus does or did is the ultimate formula of true forgiveness, the forgiveness that heals the offender. The story begins in John chapter 10, then goes on to Matthew chapter 26, and on to John 18 and John 21. We're not going to read all those texts. I'll just take you through them quickly. So let's look at the narrative of forgiveness, starting with the first segment, which the first time you read it doesn't say anything about forgiveness. John 10 is about Jesus being the good shepherd, the good shepherd that God sent. Good shepherd sent by God, and the moment that you hear the word shepherd, you remember Psalms 23. The shepherd who leads his sheep into green pastures and along gentle streams. The sheep know his voice. He protects them against thieves and wild animals. And he goes in search of even one if that one is lost. And ultimately, he says, the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Now, there's nothing about forgiveness there. But wait, and we'll get to it. Now, the second segment in Matthew chapter 26, 31 to 35, Jesus, for the first time, openly talks about his coming trial and death. And he makes this surprising prediction. Talking to his disciples, he says, you all will abandon me. You all will flee. Peter 
doesn't like what he hears. So he stands up and he says, Lord, I pledge loyalty to you to the end. Jesus says, Peter, before the the cock crows three times, you'll deny me. I'm sorry, before the cock crows once, you'll deny me three times. Peter says, no, Lord, I would rather die first. Now, again, there's nothing about forgiveness in that story, but we are building a case here. Now, the third segment is John chapter 18, verse 15 to 18. Jesus is on trial. John is in the high priest's private court. He knew people there, so he was given entrance. But Peter had to stay outside on the street. So John talks to one of the officials, and eventually they say, yeah, go get your friend. So John gets Peter, and both of them gather together with the officials and the servants around a fire of burning coal. Now, brothers and sisters, you've read that story many times. Let me just ask a question, not expecting any answer. There's nobody around. How many times have you stopped to think about a fire of burning coal? Why did John think important to include that in the story? We'll come to that a bit later. So somebody looks at Peter and says, I know you. You are one of them. And he says, no, I don't know him. A second one comes and says, of course, you were with him in the garden. No, I don't know him. And the servant, a maid, comes and says, you were with him. And this time, Peter is angry and he swears that he was not with Jesus. And just then, the cock crows. And Peter remembers. He's heartbroken. I like to think the Bible doesn't say so, if I remember correctly, but I like to think that at that moment that the cock crowed, Jesus looked towards him, and that pierced Peter to his heart. I've wondered what were his emotions when he left the court and walked towards wherever he lived. Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, what were Peter's emotion? What would have been yours had you been in Peter's shoes? Let's get to the final segment of this first part of my sermon. Matthew 16, 7 and John 21, 1 to 19. I'm sorry, Matthew 26, 7 and John 21, 1 to 19. Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene is the first who goes to the graveyard. And there she finds that the tomb is open and there's nobody in there. And she's upset, you can imagine, you can understand. And then somebody walks by and Mary turns and says, Gardener, please tell me where you've put his body so that I can take it away. I've always wondered what was she going to do with that body. I will suggest an answer. Back in her backyard in Bethany, there was an empty tomb from which Lazarus had walked out. And maybe she thought, I can put the body of Jesus there. It's just an idea. Anyway, then Jesus says, Mary, Mary, and she recognizes drops on her knees. Jesus lifts her up and Jesus says, go tell to the disciples, to my disciples and to Peter. Why did Jesus stress and to Peter? So she goes and tells that to the disciples and says, Peter, he singled you out. And again, I thought, I'm thinking, what goes through a man's mind who's betrayed who is denied, and then who meets the one he's betrayed, and the one says, I want to see you soon. I know how I would feel. He must have wondered, is Jesus going to reveal my denial to the others? They didn't know, only John knew. The journey to Galilee takes about four days, because Jesus said, I'll meet you there by the lake. 
And on reaching Galilee, Peter invites six of the disciples to go fishing. And again, is it because he does not consider himself a disciple anymore, reverting to his previous identity, his previous job? They go fishing. A fruitless night. Exhausted, they prepare to return to shore. Then suddenly a voice carried by the mist reaches them and they look and they see somebody that they do not recognize standing on the beach. And then that voice that was being carried by the mist hits their ears and they hear the most ridiculous statement. Hey guys, do you have any food? I mean, fishermen coming from a whole night fishing wouldn't have any food except raw fish at best. They don't answer. And the voice then says something just as ridiculous. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. I mean, a boat, a fishing boat is seven, eight, two meters wide. They've thrown their nets on one side all night long. Why would the ship, the fish, go from this side to that side just within minutes? Why? That doesn't happen. They were professional fishermen. That doesn't happen, but they did throw. You know, out of exhaustion, you know, like we say, well, let's try it. Doesn't really matter. How? What will we lose? But then the second miraculous catch occurs. And John mentions it. Why? Why did Jesus do that again? We'll come to that as well later, a little bit later. But John did mention that in his gospel. And he mentions it in the context of the conversation between Jesus and Peter. Peter Peter is stunned by that miraculous catch. He jumps in the water, you know, Galilee in... April, that's about the time of the crucifixion. It's early spring, the water is cold. You know, I've lived 16 years in Canada. I've never gone swimming in Canada, except in a swimming pool that was heated. But the Canadian would jump come spring, March, April, May. They all would jump in the water. But Peter jumps, he swims, and the others gradually return. Peter jumps because he has recognized that it is Jesus. He says, it is the Lord. And now we come to something that I drew your attention to earlier. When they all gathered there on the beach, they saw a coal of burning fire. The second time that John mentions the same words, a coal of burning fire. Why did he include that detail in that story? Writing some 70 years after this episode, John has had time to think and rethink about what had occurred during the last days of Jesus. And then he writes the narrative that is going to be called the Gospel according to John. 70 years of reflection, of thinking, of mulling on all those things. He writes that story, and it is the story about the moment when Jesus is going to forgive Peter. John, I would suggest to you, in that story, outlines the process of forgiveness like no other biblical text does. Other text says forgive, God forgives, you forgive, and that sort of thing. But what is the process of forgiveness? I mentioned a few things to you earlier, saying that very often in our preaching, we introduce psychological concepts, which are not necessarily wrong. But what does the Bible say about true, genuine, divine kind of forgiveness? Let's see. The first step, the coal burning fire. That vividly brings Peter back to the circumstances around his denial. Coal burns with a very special smell. And I would suggest to you that as Peter sat there with John and the others, the smell of coal took his mind back 
10 days earlier. I don't know if you've experienced it, but smell does bring memory back. I still tease my wife. My wife wears channel number five. My, uh, the girlfriend I had before my wife used, what was it? Oscar de la Renta. And I gave her Oscar de la Renta perfume a few times during the two or three years that we went together until things didn't work out and I met my wife and then it was channel number five. But to this day, if I walk down the road and a lady walks by and there are, you know, fragrance of Oscar de la Renta, I see the face of that girl back in my mind. And my wife says, when are you going to forget that smell? But anyway, I don't know that it happens just like that. But anyway, so Peter smells the coal and it brings back to him his betrayal. Now, why did Jesus build that fire? I would suggest to you that no real forgiveness can occur before the offender is brought back to the circumstances of his offense. We don't do that. We just say, forget it. I forgive you. I don't, don't think about it. But that's not forgiveness. It's being very casual about the whole process. Forgiveness is a divine process and we need to deepen our understanding. So let me repeat that. No real forgiveness can happen unless the offender goes back or is taken back to the circumstance of his offense. This is a very necessary mental process because he needs to recall the attitudes and circumstances that led him to that betrayal. Because as he recalls that and recalls the person that he betrayed or did something wrong to and remembers the look in that person, that look should get him to remember the hurt that was inflicted. If we haven't been hurt, we don't need to forgive. But I'm talking serious hurt here. So Jesus takes Peter back there without saying a word, just by having that fire burning. And John, 70 years later, puts two and two together. And he writes this beautiful story about the process, the divine process of forgiveness. So Jesus so far, apart from the, hey guys, do you have any food? Hasn't said anything. It's all John's story. They see that Jesus has some fish prepared and some flatbread, and they share that breakfast. That is also important. When you start the process of forgiveness, you've got to create a very comfortable atmosphere that will soften the heart of the offender. You know, they talked around the fire. Jesus probably did as well, but it's not mentioned. And it was casual. What did they talk about? Memories, three and a half years. Remembering that first miraculous catch? I don't know. But when it's all done, when they've eaten, then Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, follow me. And he goes a little bit further, just with Peter. Now, John is curious and he follows from a distance. That's how he recorded, he remembered the words of the conversation. But Jesus and Peter are having this private conversation now. When you've taken the offender, when the offender has been taken to the circumstance that in which the offense was done, committed, then that brings confession, which is the next step before forgiveness happens. Now, how did that confession occur in that private conversation. Simon, son of Jonas, or son of John, do you truly, truly love me more than these? Notice that Jesus reverts to Peter's old name, Simon. Why did Jesus do that? Well, names in the Bible stand for character for personality, for attitudes, for the way you do things. So when Jesus says Simon, he's bringing Simon back to three and a half years before the Simon that he was. Now the name Simon, again, if you haven't taken time to find out the meaning, it means the man who has heard. One can hear but soon forget. 
we hear many things and we don't remember. By calling the man by his original name, Jesus is in, is in effect telling him that though he has heard Jesus and though he has heard who Jesus was, it had not fundamentally changed him. Jesus had said, I'll call you the rock, Peter, but at that point he had not yet become the rock. In Jesus' mind, you're still Simon. Simon had bragged that even if the others ran away, he would not run away. But that's the old Simon. It wasn't the rock. He denied. The others ran. He ran and denied, or he denied and ran. He denied openly. He denied in front of witnesses. He denied brazenly. That was who Simon the man was. The man who had heard Jesus, who had heard about Jesus, but had not allowed what he heard to change him. But at the same time that Jesus calls him Simon, Jesus also brings him back to that time when he was called after the first miraculous catch. That's when Jesus said, you won't be Simon anymore, you'll be Peter. So can you see all those emotions, all that psychology that's going on in Peter's mind and Peter's heart? He's processing all that. And now he's back fishing, his former job. And if you go by that one night on the, ocean, on, the, on the lake, he was not very good at it. He and his friends didn't catch anything. Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? And he hangs his head and he mutters, it's no longer the strong man who's standing up and leading out. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lamb. We'll come to that later as well. Then a second time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. Then Jesus says a third time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? And John recorded that Simon was hurt because Jesus asked three times, a third time. Three times. And again, uh, brothers and sisters, may I suggest that when you read the word of God, as much as you can, stop at every word, every expression, because those disciples were inspired to write stories about Christ and they were selective in the words they chose. It's not given to all members to have that kind of knowledge. That's why you've got ministers. So take Pastor Nick and ask him, why did John say that? Or Pastor Pablo. But you know, today on YouTube, you can have all kinds of very good material if you just give serious thoughts to Bible study. Anyway, coming back here. Three is the number in the Jewish culture that symbolized completeness. What is absolute? Peter's denial three times was a complete reflection of who he really was in spite of all the bragging and the posture. He was a complete denier. That's who Peter was. Simon, the man who had heard and not allowed what he heard to change him. Now, let me just throw this question. It's not really relevant to what I'm saying, but just asking. Both Peter and Judas betrayed on the same night. Which of the two broke the heart of Jesus more? Judas had never pretended to be a true follower of Jesus. In fact, Ellen White writes in Desire of Ages that Jesus did not select him. The disciples pressured Jesus to take him on board because he had expertise in management and business. So Jesus had. Peter, on the other hand, had been chosen by Jesus. He had been the leader of the group, always with Jesus, and he had even been given the privilege of seeing Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, of hearing the Father say, this is my beloved Son, 
In spite of that, he still denied the old Simon. But three times also symbolizes complete forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that Jesus offered. Now let me say a word about that conversation and the word love. Why was Peter hurt the third time? Was it just because Jesus said it three times? A little knowledge of Greek would clarify that for you. And again, talk to your ministers, talk to people that may have done those kinds of studies, and they'll be glad to share with you. The first two times, Peter, uh, Simon, do you love me? Jesus uses the word agape. He said, Peter, agapas, third person singular, do you agapas me? Agape, unconditional love, the kind of love that God loves. And Peter had answered, I philo, which is human love. So God, Jesus is putting the bar, placing the bar very high, and Peter humbly, it's not the bragging Peter anymore. He doesn't say, yes, I agape you. He says, I philo you, phileo you. That's the best I can do. But the, third, the second time, the same thing happens. But the third time, Jesus turns things around and he says, Peter, do you phileis me? Is that all the love you can have in your heart for me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, that's all I can do. And that's what hurt Peter. You know, it's a highly emotional story that we just read so quickly at times. When I read that, it, it grabs me, you know, it shakes me. No more bragging now. I love you, Lord, but it's that kind of love. This is a sign of true conversion. When you acknowledge who you are. And for that to happen, the coal burning fire, the second miraculous catch, the reminder of his former name, all these things work together to bring Peter to that point. I'm not concluding right now. I've got a few more things to say, but just a question. When you forgive those that offend you, do you take them through that journey that you yourself walk along with them, which is painful for both? I think we are too casual when we say, okay, brother, I've forgiven you. Forget it. Now Jesus is ready to take the ultimate step of forgiveness, the step which psychology does not mention. Peter is totally repentant. He has acknowledged his inability to do what he bragged about, I will die for you. He's accepted that he couldn't do that. And the second miraculous catch reminded Peter of his original calling to be a fisher of men. It also reminded him that Jesus had said, your name will not be Simon, it will be the rock, Peter, the rock that cannot be moved, the rock on which others will build their houses, like the Sermon of the Mount says, the rock whose testimony will bring others to Christ, the testimony being the message of forgiveness, the way God forgives. Feed my sheep, feed my lamb. Now I want to take you back to John chapter 10. The Father sent me, I am the good shepherd. What Jesus is doing, he says, Peter, now that you are totally repentant, I'm forgiving you, but forgiveness doesn't say forget it. It says, I'm reinstating you to who I wanted you to be. And he goes further, he says, be a shepherd. Jesus identifies Peter to his own mission. Can you see what's going on now? This identification. He offers Peter his own identity because go back to John 10. I have come to feed the sheep. I have come to feed the lamb. And now he says, feed my sheep, feed my lamb. Those memories flood back into Peter's mind. He is inviting Peter to engage in exactly the same mission. And brothers and sisters, I have this here on the paper in capital letters. In higher case, forgiveness is genuine only when you reinstate the offender in the position to which that he occupied in your mind and heart before he offended. 
Now that's tough. That's very, very tough. Who the offender was in your mind and heart before the offense is what forgiveness is designed to do to bring that person back to that same level. No thing, nothing in between anymore. I told you, I'm telling you that this is very, very difficult, but Jesus did it. He invited Peter to identify with himself in the God-assigned mission of feeding God's sheep and God's lamb. I'm sure that when Peter heard again, feed my lamb, feed my sheep, David came to his mind. Psalms 23 came to his mind. All those stories of king, the shepherd king, went back, came back. But Peter also knows that to be able to fully identify with Jesus, he cannot serve with philo love. It's got to be agape love. So how does Jesus do that? How does he bring that love into Peter's mind? Jesus knows that at that precise moment in the conversation, Peter has understood mentally, and he is now ready to wear the mantle of his Lord. Then follows the strangest part of the conversation, but so revealing of the change in Peter. Jesus says, today you dress as you wish, you go where you want, but the day is coming when someone else will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. Peter understood. John did not write away. Writing later, he, say that he wrote, that was Jesus' way of telling Peter how he would die. Now, right there where Jesus has forgiven, reinstated, then Jesus says, you're going to die. Forgiveness is all that. There may not always be dying, but are you willing, if I reinstate you to this position you had in my heart before, to journey with me through thick and thin? Forgiveness? Okay. So, Peter readily took on his shoulders Christ's own mission. And from then on, he labored tirelessly for the young, newly born church. Yes, he made a few mistakes, nobody's perfect, but he kept on going. He gave his all to that mission and he suffered. You can read about it in his first epistle and his second epistle, where he, he bears his soul. Writing to the churches, Peter said, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Brothers and sisters, when you forgive people that offend you, do you bring them along so that they can once again bask in the warmth of the sunshine of God, can enjoy wonderful light just like Peter did, like Jesus did to Peter and Peter to the people that he served? And then he adds, rejoice even now, even if now you may have to suffer grief of all kind in all kinds of trials. These have come so, these have come so that you have faith, so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. Can you sense the deep change that has happened over the last half hour of that conversation, starting from, hey guys, do you have some food? Then the fire and everything else. Peter served until he ultimately gave his life. He fulfilled what he had denied, what he had said before but had denied. He kept on working until the authorities, tradition says that it was in Rome, we don't have any proof of that but it doesn't matter, I like to think it was in Rome, and I'll tell you why, but don't take my word for that. In those days when you preached about Christ, the Master, the Lord, who were you preaching against? The Emperor. The Emperor, in those days, I think it was Nero, would not have taken lightly to somebody coming to in Rome and saying, you've got to give your allegiance to this new Master. 
we don't think about that, but that's how they, the, 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 the place where they, where they work and labored. And so he was condemned to death. He was condemned to die by crucifixion. But then, again, tradition says that he told the, ex the, the, the guy that was going, the man that was going to, to nail his, him to the cross, he said, please, it's an, it would be an honor for me to be crucified the way my master was. So they said, what do you want? What are you saying? Please crucify me head down. All because of that conversation by the side of the lake. Now, as we close, brothers and sisters, we can go back to the introduction. How did God show his gracious forgiveness to the worthies listed in Hebrew 11 and the 12 sons of Jacob mentioned in Revelation 7? It was not just forgiveness, it was reinstatement. And even to higher privileges and higher responsibilities. God reinstated them all. He gave them all roles to play in his own enterprise to redeem the world. The Bible calls that the covenant. I would, I would strongly advise you when you're reading, read the Old Testament with the covenant in mind and look how the covenant flows in and out, up and down along the history, the turbulent sometimes history of Israel and see how God maneuvers and the people that keep that covenant going along. It makes Bible reading fascinating. Do I need to say that this kind of forgiveness, very few, if any of us, have ever done it? I haven't. I wish I had, and I pray that I will. That's what Jesus meant when he said, Father in heaven, forgive us as we forgive. I am willing to reinstate him, Father, because you reinstated me. The kind of forgiveness that calls for reinstating. Do the individuals that I have forgiven occupy in my heart and my mind and in my present reality the same place and position that they held in my mind, in my heart, in my reality back then? Unless that has happened, you have not forgiven according to God's concept of forgiveness. And here I will close now, taking you to Matthew 18, 20, which says, wherever two and three are gathered in my name to pray, I will be there. That's one of the most misused verse in the whole Bible. We have a prayer meeting and there are only two or three people and we say, don't worry, brothers and sisters, wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus is there. That's true. I do not deny that. But that verse was given in Matthew 18 in the context of forgiveness. Because to, pray, to forgive like that, you need to pray for yourself first and pray for that person as well. Pray for God to give you the kind of love that can reinstate and pray for the offender to allow himself to be reinstated. Pray that God gives a divine strength to reinstate the people that we forgive. For, and that applies to individual believers. It applies as the church as well when the church meets for disciplinary action. You know, we, we, we take these things too casually. Oh, brother so-and-so has been disciplined. He's been disfellowshipped. And we sometimes, oh, he deserved it. You know, the kind of thing we, we, we say. Do, does the church, do I forgive like Jesus forgives? And so, genuine forgiveness heals both the forgiver and the forgiven. The complete healing for the forgiver and complete healing for the forgiven. And that can only happen when, like God, we forgive, reinstate the offender to his previous reality in our mind. And that can only happen if you follow the process that I have outlined. So forgiveness takes time to think, to reflect, to pray, to fast until God brings you to the point where you can do it. I like, and you may have heard this story about the black preacher. You know, when I was in North America, I lived in Canada for many, many years. I enjoyed going to that particular church because there was a black preacher, and black preacher preached with style. 
And by the way, they learn how to preach like that. If you go to Oakwood College, that's our black uh, seminary, they learn that style and they speak with their throat, your brothers and sisters, you know, like that. So this black preacher, he said, brothers and sisters, my God is great. He's forgiven my sins. He's put it in the deepest part of the ocean. Then he came out and wrote, no fishing allowed. And I think that's a beautiful way of forgiving. Don't bring it back. And because I'm talking mainly to a Christian environment, in our church, people fish the sins of the others once a year when we have nominating committee. We need to change brothers and sisters. So, with this little word of caution about offenders who do these kinds of things that I have mentioned, but the principle remains. Reinstatement is the only attitude, action, that will bring total healing. And that's the way God forgives. Let me read a closing story to illustrate that. I was reading for my morning worship and I came across that story and I thought, I'm going to use it in a sermon. Then I wrote this sermon for you. The man had offered to help clean up after the dinner party. Indeed, he was eager to do so. My wife gave him a towel and he worked away with us, wiping pans and jugs. But he was still excited after the events of the day and his mind wasn't really on the job. Once or twice we suggested he might like to sit down to read or relax, but he wanted to help and so he went on. Then he ha- it happened. He picked up the new crystal water jug that we had been given a few days before. We held our breath as he began to wipe it. But as he did, he turned to say something to the men next to him and didn't notice that the men was turning at the same time. They bumped into each other. Too late, the beautiful, expensive jug fell and broke into a thousand pieces. He was crestfallen, embarrassed. He were, we were devastated, but we tried not to show it. He swept up the broken glass of the floor. He promised to buy us another jug. He left shortly after with a flood, in a flood of apologies. My wife and I struggled to think through what forgiveness would mean in a case like that. We were angry, of course, but we knew it had happened because he was just too eager for his own good. We thought about it a lot. We prayed about it a lot. Then a couple of weeks later, we invited him to a meal again. And this time after the meal, we also invited him to help us clean. We gave him a towel. We looked, he looked at us with disbelief. He smiled, he helped, he was reinstated. And the broken vase, who cares? <laughs> I wasn't going to tell you, but my wife one day showed that to me. Our son Terry, for our 50, 25th anniversary, gave us a set of expensive crystal wine glasses for non-alcoholic wine. <laughs> And we had a number of people, we were in New Caledonia, and we had some people from Vanuatu have Christmas dinner with us. Now, I could see they were embarrassed because, you know, they live in poverty, and my wife, whoever comes to eat, she sets the table like, like for a king. And at one point, Dick, a young minister, just graduated from Sonoma, that's our school over there, did something and dropped one, his glass. It shattered. And the whole group of Vanuatu people looked at him accusingly, and he was so embarrassed. I didn't say a word. My wife took him, tap, pat, patted his shoulder, went and got another glass from the set and served him. And he couldn't believe it. Now, I'm not saying that my wife is a saint. I'm not saying that no one is a saint, but that's the way you forgive. This young man to this day reminds, tells me that was something that I still remember. 
How do we forgive? Not the way the world forgives. Not the way the, that psychology says we should. As lo I mean, it's good to follow that. But forgive with intention of reinstating. Because that's forgiveness according to God. You don't find any other story in the Bible about that. You see examples of people forgiven. But that process, that journey, John is the only one that talks to us about it. My prayer for you, brothers and sisters, as you think about forgiveness, as you remember people that may have hurt you and casually you said, don't worry, I forgive you. Start praying about how to forgive the way God forgives. And those who do will have their names among the 144,000. They'll have their names in God's hall of fame, of faith, trophies for eternity. God bless you. Let's close with prayer. Father, very often we read that you are the God that forgives. But in our minds, we see this forgiveness just the way we forgive people. But it's much deeper than that. Nothing that you do is just the way we do. But what the way we do should, become closer and cl should come closer and closer to the way you do. Jesus is our example in all things. Yes, we talk about his death on the cross to forgive. But what does it really mean? I thank you for John chapter 21. I thank you that John has taken time to outline that process. And may the process becomes the way I forgive. Because ultimately this is what will show to the world that you have really changed us into people that they cannot believe they see when they meet us. Because they are seeing replicas of Jesus. People invited to feed the sheep and the lamb of the Father. May your name be praised. And we pray in Jesus' name, the great forgiver. Amen.